Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode 35 called Debbie. So before we get started with today's episode, I want to tell you guys about these new personalized supplements that I've been taking and loving. They're called Binto. But first, I want you guys to know that every single sponsor that I feature on this podcast has been handpicked by me and personally vetted by me. And with Binto, before I agreed to do a sponsorship with them, I wanted to make sure that I really loved them. So before I gave them my endorsement and before I recommended them to you, I wanted to try them. So I've been using Binto for about a month and it is made by women for women, which as you guys know is hugely important to me. So these supplements are made just for you and they come in this super chic package. So you get something in the mail, it's a package of 30 packets of supplements these 30 little bags, plus these cool information cards that tell you what's inside each bag and what they do for you. It's just a very cool way to take your supplements. So a little bit more about Binto. They were founded by Susie Welsh, a fertility nurse, who noticed that women were doing a lot of the guesswork themselves and waiting too long to get answers on their health questions. So she started Binto, and here's how it works. You go to mybinto.com, you take a short survey, and then you get a list of supplements personalized to your needs. And with every subscription, you get access to a real licensed health professional. So you can chat with them right there on the website, which is pretty cool. So then you get these cute little packets in the mail. And on each bag, for example, mine say, Allie, up your glow, which is super cute and makes me smile every time I pull them out. So you can throw them in your bag for on the go. And there's just so much chicer than those like geriatric plastic pill sorters that I've been using for years. Also, this is probably important to you guys. They are organic, vegan, and gluten-free. So give them a try. Go to mybinto.com slash infertileaf and use the promo code infertileaf and you'll get 20% off your first month subscription. So mybinto.com slash infertileaf promo code infertileaf for 20% off. So I want to tell you guys a little bit more about my guest today. Her name is Debbie, and she is a friend of my friends, Kristen and Liam. So thanks, guys, for introducing me to Debbie. First, you should know that Debbie is hilarious, as you'll see as you listen to this story. She definitely came at this infertility journey with a sense of humor, so I can relate to that. Kristen and Liam are also hilarious, so that doesn't surprise me that they're super tight with her. But Debbie's got an interesting story in that she had an unplanned pregnancy when she was 36, and then sadly she had a late-term miscarriage in her third trimester. And then she didn't start trying to have kids again until she was 39 and she was married. So it's really interesting to see everything she went through. I'm not going to give away the ending, but I want to thank Debbie for sharing everything with us about her journey. And there's a lot of ups and downs. I will say she went through eight rounds of IVF. And as she tells us at the end, she calculated and kept track because she's a numbers person. She had 450 shots total that she estimated that she gave herself throughout the course of her infertility journey. So I will let her tell it herself. And thanks again for coming back to listen. Without further ado, this is Debbie's infertility story. 
Hey, Debbie, how are you today? Hi, Allie. I'm great. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for doing this. I want to start by saying that our amazing mutual friend, Kristen, introduced us. So thank you, Kristen. You went through a lot to have your two sons, starting with, you know, you did eight retrievals. Tell me where your story began. When did you, you know, did you always grow up knowing that you wanted to be a mom? I I grew up thinking I wanted to be a mom. I was very maternal and I loved taking care of the younger children in sort of my parents' tribe of friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone in my parents' group of friends always sort of imagined me to be the little mother. And I guess I sort of absorbed that role and grew up thinking that I was going to be a mom. And then life sort of happened to me. And I graduated from college and went to work in finance and went back and got my MBA and continued to work in finance. And I found myself in my mid-30s, single, married to my job and without any prospects. So, um, you know, I was dating here and there, but I had not gotten to the point of marriage with anyone. Mm -hmm. And when I was 30 six years old, I was dating a guy and um, I found, I'm using birth control and found myself pregnant unexpectedly, very unexpectedly. What was Um, the birth control? I was on the pill. Oh, wow. Yeah. a, A low dose birth control, but nonetheless, I was on the pill and taking it like as, you know, it was next to my toothbrush on my sink. I took it. Yeah every day as it wasn't like I had missed taking a dose or anything like that. Wow. So I, I wasn't necessarily that serious about the guy, but, and he wasn't particularly supportive about the situation, but I, I looked at this as sort of maybe a sign from above that this was going to be my chance Mm -hmm. to be a parent. And I kind of summoned my courage And, um, I, I waited until I had gone through the requisite tests to, you know, make sure the pregnancy was viable. And then I summoned my courage and I told my parents that I was pregnant and I sort of owned the situation and decided that I was going to do it on my own. And how old were you, Debbie? I was 36. So yeah, it was a pretty textbook pregnancy until Early in my third trimester, when I went in for an appointment and there was no heartbeat. Oh my and God. what I found out later after um, delivery that the umbilical cord had two knots in it mm-hmm. that um, had occurred probably very, very, very early on, obviously. And as the baby had grown, they had tightened and essentially cut off the blood supply. Oh my so, God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it, it was soul crushing and awful and terrible at the time. Obviously, my heart still hurts because of it, but mm-hmm. at the same token, and it was hard additionally because I had taken such personal ownership of the situation that it was it was a profound loss for me alone by myself. There wasn't anyone. Mm-hmm. So the guy was there to share it with me. Um, Out of the picture entirely. Yes, absolutely. And how many weeks along were you when you discovered this? 27 and change. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, it was awful. 
So, but now when I think about it, almost 12 years to the day later, mm-hmm. I, I think about how different my life would have been. Right. And it isn't with regret. It's just with profound amazement. Mm-hmm. It's almost poignant to think that had that happened differently, if I was a single mom of a 12-year-old girl or almost 12-year-old girl right now, I would never have met my husband. There's, I wouldn't have been a single available person that would have met him a couple years later. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have gone through the fertility journey that we're about to discuss mm-hmm. or infertility journey, I should say. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't have my two amazing kids and to imagine my world without them yeah. is, I mean, you try and imagine your world without your kids. It's, mm-hmm. They would not exist without the combination of my husband and I. Right. So I would imagine that elite term miscarriage, I mean, not that it's a competition ever, but that's got to be harder than, you know, I had early miscarriages and obviously those were devastating. But when you're 27 weeks along, I mean, that is a major loss. How did you? you I have a lot of friends who have delivered children who are micro preemies, but they are survive at that gestational age. So um, in retrospect, that was particularly hard to sort of get my head around Mm -hmm. that if I had been aware of the problem, that it was, you know, potentially avoidable, but it's not like it was anybody's fault. And I got through it to answer your question, just with the support of really good friends. Yeah. One of my best friends since eighth grade flew in from California, stayed a week with me. You know, I took a couple weeks off work and just didn't leave my apartment. It was just kind of wine and cigarettes and just (laughs) a lot of feeling sorry for myself. But I think that most of my friends would probably say that I am a pretty stiff upper lip person. And I just sort of stuck my head down and kept going. And I actually ran the marathon that fall because I was like, screw it. Like, I'm going to make lemonade out of lemons. Like I need to like get moving. And I had historically raised money for Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. I was on the board of that charity in the city. And my, um, one of my godchildren had had leukemia a few years back. So mm-hmm. I was like, damn it, I'm just going to go ahead and try and run the marathon this fall. And I did wow. it. Wow. With the New York yeah. marathon. Yeah. And it oh was like God. a good thing to focus on. Absolutely. Um, gave me a different lens to focus and get my mind off of it. And it gave me a goal. And so that was a nice thing to do. Yeah. So then you said you met your husband a few years later. What, how did you meet him? My husband, I guess the following spring, he is an on-air personality on the radio. Mm -hmm. And I was in the office on the weekend, one weekend and he happened to be on the air and I was streaming there. This is before really Pandora and Spotify and all of that took off. I was just streaming their radio station. So I clicked on the button to request a song and I requested a Van Halen song. Which one? And, um, I just said anything by Van Halen. Okay. I, I'm a huge Van Halen fan. So he, um, and I told him I was going to see them in concert. So I would rather, you know, think about Van Halen for a minute than the work I was doing. And (laughs) he thinks he's a Van Halen expert. So he came back and said, their tour is over. I don't know what you're talking about. And 
so we got in a disagreement because I knew I was going to see them in concert at this summer festival. I was right. He, you know, that was his first lesson. I did end up going to the show. It actually happened. I knew it was going to. (laughs) And so he had to admit that I was right. And that is not the last time that has happened. And then, yeah, we ended up emailing for, I would say, five or six months. Wow. Just friendly, like friendly emails back and forth and not really flirtatious, to be Mm -hmm. honest. It was just kind of, we had a lot of stuff in common. He never, ever asked me out. Mm -hmm. And I was like, is he not straight? Mm -hmm. Like we have, I don't understand why he, finally he asked me out for coffee. Uh And yeah, and the rest was history. I think on our third date, we went on a trip on a boat. We ended up getting married like within a year. Please tell me you walked down the aisle to a Van Halen song. Um, I did not walk down the aisle to a Van Halen song, (laughs) but I did have non-traditional music. Okay. Um, I walked down the aisle to a guitar solo by a guitarist called Eric Johnson, who is also a favorite of ours. And we definitely had a lot of Van Halen mixed in at our reception. Good. Okay. Dance the Night Away. I think the band played that. And additionally... Um, his wedding present to me that he gave me at the rehearsal dinner was a signed guitar from Eddie Van Halen. Get like, out. Personalized to me. Stop. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. Do you play guitar? I don't, but my okay. seven, our seven-year-old is like a prolific guitar player, as prolific as you can be. For cool. Really good. Like he can play most of the Beatles catalog. And, oh my God. Awesome. Yeah, he's a little shredder. So we'll cool. See. Maybe it'll run in the family. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So let's get into the whole infertility stuff. So what happened when you guys started to try to have babies? So I, having accidentally gotten pregnant, I, I was under the impression that I wouldn't have a huge amount of trouble getting pregnant, even though at this point I was 39. Mm -hmm. Um, So we started trying And my OB had said, yeah, just get going at your age. If you try for six months and nothing happens, we'll definitely refer you to an RE or reproductive endocrinologist for Mm -hmm. um, the rookies that don't know all the lingo. Right. Um, Lots of acronyms. I should backtrack and say that like, beyond the sadness over my loss if I could have one takeaway from that situation, I really wish that someone had talked to me about my fertility at that point. I was incredibly lucky to have gotten pregnant in the way that I did, Mm -hmm. but I wish that someone had sort of held up the continuum of fertility to me at that point and said, if you do want to have a baby in the future, you really do need to consider freezing your eggs, retrieving what you have, because no one had ever had that conversation with me. I didn't understand at 39 how much better off I would have been at 37 thinking about it, just doing an egg retrieval and just freezing even just the eggs to have an insurance policy. Yeah. I agree with you on that. Same, same with me. Yeah. I just didn't know. Um, So at 39, we started trying, we did the requisite six months and nothing. And so uh, I was referred to an RE in the city 
and went in and he said, well, they did the tests. My AMH and my FSH were good for my age. And so he said, you know, at 39 and a half or whatever I was at that point, his recommendation would be not to waste my time with IUIs. He's like, if, if you're going to spend the money, you can do five or six IUIs or you can just do one really good IVF. Let's, I, my recommendation would be to go straight to IVF. Okay. Yeah. Good. I like that. Let's go for it. So I think it was in February of 2011, I started my first retrieval. Mm -hmm. And I think that first one was gonal and menopure only. Mm -hmm. And did the stem drugs. It took, I think, 11 or 12 days. Did the retrieval. I got about 15 eggs. And this was a fresh transfer at that point at 2011. PGS was really not in existence yet. Okay. Or it was very, very, very new technology. Mm -hmm. He didn't even really discuss it with me. So we did a day three fresh transfer back, I think, of maybe four embryos that looked good. And the expectation was not for multiples. It was just, you know, these are graded pretty well and you hope that one sticks. Mm -hmm. And so I had the two-week wait, kind of tried to keep busy. And to be honest, like it wasn't really on my mind. Obviously, it was on my mind. I was thinking about it, but it wasn't like I was tortured by oh my God, when can I test? When am I going back in? It just sort of went on and lived my life. Mm -hmm. But I went back in for the pregnancy test and it was negative. Mm. And I honestly, I couldn't believe that it didn't work. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if it was naivete or or what, but after all the money, and we paid out of pocket, by the way, we did not have any insurance mm-hmm. coverage for fertility at all, mm-hmm. um, especially because we kind of fell into that basket of you're only having fertility issues because you elected to, you know, wait to try and have kids. Yeah. It's not fairly, it's unexplained infertility. So, okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we paid for it out of pocket. All the visits and the medication, I think altogether was probably, you know, sixteen or seventeen thousand dollars. Yep. Manhattan prices. So yeah, I it's the one time that I really, really cried. I called mm-hmm. my mom and I said it didn't work. And I just couldn't believe after all the shots mm-hmm. and all the cash and the entire process, how could that not work? Right. It's so precise and it's so involved and they and we did exceed with our embryos so all of them were you know the sperm was injected into the egg they all fertilized they all grew out how and they put them right back in and I watched them do it on an ultrasound and how is it possible that I'm not pregnant so yeah it just it seemed inconceivable to me that after all the cost and effort that it didn't work. We gathered ourselves and decided that we would try again. Mm -hmm. So at this point, so we went in for like the post retrieval or post procedure talk with the doctor 
which you sort of do to recap what was good, what was bad. Did you respond well? And my response had been fine. I think that the impression was that the protocol that they had used was the correct protocol as far as, far as stimulation for me. Mm-hmm. But obviously the end result was not the desired one. So they stuck with the same protocol. I took a month off. And then in May of 2011, I did, um, end of May, I did, I started stimming again. And I will never forget that my retrieval, you know, you can tell if you remember, like your ovaries start to get so sore and like just going over like, or in a pothole in a cab, you're like, oh my God, like you feel like your abdomen is going to burst just because it's like so crampy and awful. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're getting, it starts getting warm. It's the beginning of June and you know when you're getting close and they are almost about to tell you to trigger. Mm-hmm. And it was a Wednesday, which went into Thursday. And I was like, okay, they're going to tell me to trigger tonight. And they were like, I think we're going to push you one more day. And so they had me trigger Friday night for retrieval Sunday morning. And it was the Puerto Rican day parade. Mm-hmm. And my doctor's office was on 59th and Madison. So it was like complete mayhem. Oh yeah. You can't get through the traffic, right? The trains and trying to get to the office. And I remember also coming out and my husband works on Sunday morning. So my friend had actually had to come and get me because you know, you're anesthetized. So they, they won't release you unless someone comes to pick you up. And she had to come get me. I'm sort of like, you know, fine, but a little woozy and groggy. And we walk out onto Madison Avenue and it's just Puerto Rican mayhem in every direction. And we were just like, oh my God. All the streets are closed off. Yeah. Yes. That was the situation from which my um, first son had his auspicious beginnings. Um, (laughs) So so that one worked. That that one worked. So I went back three days later, they did a fresh transfer and second try was the charm. So I was delighted. I was pregnant and um, went back at six weeks, heard Mm -hmm. the heartbeat. And for the most part, that pregnancy was pretty textbook. Obviously, a little gun shy from my prior experience. I was pretty nervous. Right. But with every milestone, you know, it was fine. This was before the um, blood test that you did in the first trimester that eliminated concerns over all the chromosomal abnormalities. And I had not done PGS testing. We had done a fresh transfer. So there was that worry. I did the NT test at 11 weeks. And then we did the quad screen and tried to triangulate all those results to give ourselves a comfort level that the baby was healthy. But I declined having an amnio because I just didn't want to do anything that was going to add any risk of, of miscarriage. I had a pretty normal pregnancy until about 31, 32 weeks and my blood pressure started to go up. And of course, they're always worried about preeclampsia. So they started, you know, testing my blood pressure. I was going in for increased monitoring and they were also, because of the worry about my blood pressure, they were doing weekly ultrasounds on the baby just to measure his growth and stuff. Mm-hmm. which is awesome when you're pregnant and you get to see more like oh, yeah. it's great. I think that everyone who has high risk pregnancies 
like a little part of them is always super psyched that they get to have more ultrasounds and yeah I mean it's nerve-wracking but when they turn out good it's yeah you're climbing this wall of worry and every little sneak peek you can get it makes you feel a little better right so the reason I mention it is because between 32 and 33 weeks all of a sudden the tech goes out and it's gone for a while and I'm like oh what in the world is going on you know there's something is wrong and so the doctor comes in and says, I'm so sorry. And I was just like, oh, Jesus Christ, what is the, I had heard the heartbeat. So I knew that like there was, that was not, mm-hmm. but the baby had developed this issue with his chest cavity had filled with fluid mm. and it was preventing his lung from inflating which is that they're about the age gestationally that they start to practice breathing, but they're breathing in amniotic fluid. Mm-hmm. But he couldn't do it because he his his chest cavity was filled with like fluid. So and it was impinging the the lung being deflated was compressing his heart too, which they were worried was going to cause a defect. So they discharged me from the regular practice up to high risk at Yale mm-hmm. and. They admitted me that night and they did a procedure with an amnio needle where they drained the fluid out of his chest. Oh my God. Through my uterus and abdomen. And it was so painful because they couldn't anesthetize me. Oh my God. And they couldn't, and obviously they couldn't prevent him from moving and he didn't like it. So that needle, like through my abdomen and my uterus and everything, it's just wiggling all over the place because he's trying to get away from it. Oh my God. Um, It was awful. And they drained like four ounces of fluid out of him. Wow. And then three days later went back, it was back. And so I had that procedure done four times, four times. And then, and it just kept coming back and they were like, look, we don't know why it's happening. He's better off being treated out versus in. Uh-huh. So they delivered him at 35 weeks, like emergency C-section. And then he was in NICU for a month. Oh my gosh. And he's totally fine now. But yeah. like, as if I like needed to worry. Right. What was the issue? Did they- I, he had um, the medical terminology is called pleural effusion when they're in utero. And once he was out, it's called a chylothorax. So when he was born, they had to put a chest tube in like a negative pressure drainage tube. And essentially he had like, uh, you know, when you cut yourself and you're not bleeding, you just have like clear lymph, Mm -hmm. his lymph system had like one of his, he had something that was draining into his chest that was headed in the wrong direction and the drainage was not happening in his body essentially. And the body's just such an incredible thing. It had to learn to properly drain itself. So the time that he spent, they put the drainage tube in, it got rid of the excess that was in there. And then this sort of network of his lymph system eventually corrected and learned how to fix it. Wow, that's so cool. But in the meantime, you know, he's got this drainage tube and I didn't get to hold him for like the first week that he was alive. I had to get discharged without ever holding him. And, you know, your pregnancy hormones, like you have that crash, like two or three days after you give birth. And 
we leave the hospital. My husband's like, it's fine. We'll be back tomorrow. And I was like, you don't understand. Oh, God. Yeah, that must have been so sad. It was really sad. And you couldn't breastfeed, obviously. Were you pumping? They put him on a prescription formula for like six months. Okay. Wanted him to have a limited intake of lipids because they thought that that probably aggravated the problem. Oh wow! But yeah, the kid is healthy as a horse. And at that point, you're like, whatever you do need to do to make them healthy, right? It's totally, like totally, totally. So he was healthy as a horse, um, or he is. And we, the silver lining is that I made some incredible friends. Well, he was inpatient. The mm-hmm. NICU is a really special place. Mm -hmm. His primary nurse is like a member of our family. Like Mm -hmm. we celebrate the holidays. We take her to lunch every Christmas. The doctors and nurses in that facility are incredible. And I have made some of my best friends, either from people that were neighbors in the NICU and also people that I have met through volunteering with moms of preemies since. It's been... It's been a really neat experience as far as that, to take What's, a positive away from it. What hospital was it? We were at Yale up okay. in New Haven. I mean, you got to give a shout out to all the nurses and doctors, right? I mean, they are just the, the people the that NICU, do that kind of work. Yeah. The maternal fetal medicine up at Yale and the NICU doctors and nurses, they are phenomenal yeah. at every hospital. Right. But I mean, the ones that I had an experience with, they were just really, really special and love them all. Um, so my older one, once, you know, we were through that sort of phalanx of his early life, um, Mm -hmm. we were kind of rested with the, or wrestled with the decision of, you know, what next? I really, we're older parents. I, I really don't want him to be an only child. And I had had a C-section, which I wasn't really planning on doing. So the immediate recommendation was, you want to wait a year before you get pregnant because you have an incision in your uterus and a pregnancy can stretch and rupture the scar. So you need to wait longer than after a vaginal delivery. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I don't have a year. I, I would like to do this as soon as possible. So we went right back on the the fertility train. Mm -hmm. So I think it was, we tried for, I was kind of hoping to ride that wave. People kind of presume or suspect or whatever the proper word would be that right after a pregnancy, you have this sort of increased fertility Mm -hmm. um, and that people get pregnant more easily right after they have a baby. I was kind of hoping that might be true for me. It was not my experience. Mm -hmm. So Beckett was born in, um, he's my older one. He was born in February of 2012. We tried for six months and that was really once he was six months old, we tried once we like came up for air. And so I think that I went back and at that point we were living in Connecticut. So I was like, I cannot with a baby now shuttle in and out of Manhattan Mm -hmm. to try and see the same doctor. So I got referred to a practice out here and went and saw the doctor out here who is phenomenal. And at that point I was 42 and a quarter. 
mm-hmm. and sat down with him and he said, look, you know, your, your hormone levels look okay. You're 42 and a quarter and started to have the conversations with me about donor eggs and this and that. And I said, I would really like to try for a bio kid. I, mm-hmm. I, I have one and I, I'm hoping to give him a full sibling. I think that I, I don't know what I would have done if I had had to get beyond that sort of position that we were taking. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that when people go through fertility, every hurdle that they get through is sort of a level of mourning and acceptance. Mm-hmm. And once they turn the page, I've watched it with so many friends. You go in thinking you only want to get pregnant the natural way because anything else is very antiseptic and right. clinical. And people are like, I don't want to do that. And then, oh, well, I'm not getting pregnant and I really want to have a baby. Okay, I'll try IUI, but I'm never doing IVF. And yeah. then, oh, I'm not getting pregnant with IUI. Okay, I guess I'll try I I never thought I would do that. And then I never thought I would use donor sperm or donor egg. I never thought I would use a surrogate. I never thought, and absolutely, you just, yeah. We talk about that a lot on, you know, on these message boards and on my Instagram and on this podcast too, is that you're, you know, people joke about, I remember when I used to be picky, you know, right. and then it's like your, your level, the bar is, it changes so much along the way and your expectations and your demands. And it's just a part of this whole process that I think is, Interesting because it's that's also kind of part of the grieving process, too. You know, like you're not, you never expected it to go X, Y, and Z route, and then it does. Absolutely. And I think that it becomes a question of how bad do you want it? I remember one of your guests, I don't remember her name, but she was the one who ultimately did not end up having a child. Donna. Um, Donna. She's in her 50s now, I believe. Yeah. And she had an experience with her doctor that I think was very similar to one that I had with my first doctor in New York, where I said, well, okay, we could start then, but we have a vacation. We were going to go, I think we we're going to Hawaii or something. And he said, do you want to go on a trip or do you want to have a baby? Mm-hmm. And I oh, okay. Yep. Um, they, they just don't have tolerance for like the rest of the things that you need to do because this needs to be done now. Yeah. And I think Donna said that too, was, you know, she has some blame for herself at this point, you know, cause she's like, I shouldn't have done that or I shouldn't have waited or I shouldn't have kept putting it off. And I felt so badly for her in that moment cause it's real. And right. that's so hard to grapple with cause Absolutely. you never know like what would have happened if you had done something differently along right. the way. Right. Um, but we can't beat ourselves up. No, that's no, the worst thing we can do. Every, you know, you can't at all, but it is interesting how you do have to go through that sort of grieving process. And I, I wasn't there at that point. So I sat there with the doctor and said, I really would like to try with my own eggs. And he said, okay, let's, let's go for it. So he changed my protocol a little bit. I was still on Menopure and Gonal, but he added in microdose of Lupron which I started a couple days before I started stims. And I think that the purpose of it is kind of to grow all of your follicles. Like the Menopure is kind of a suppressor, I want to say. The gonal is obviously a total stimulant. And I think that the Lupron is meant to kind of grow all the follicles at an equal rate. 
Yeah. So the microdose Lupron was morning and night. And then, so I was making kind of a cocktail. You get so good at like mixing up those little things. I mm-hmm. think I, I, I was like a mixologist. So yeah, we tried round three with the microdose Lupron. I think in every retrieval I got, I, my average was like 15 to 18 eggs. It was always like a good response rate for Mm -hmm. someone, you know, in their early forties. Round three, we PGS tested. Uh, Basically we grew them out to day five. Once they all fertilized because we did ICSI again grew them out to day five or six, you know, they always crap out. They, everything looks good on day three. They normally start to crap out by day five. We normally grew everything out until day six because my guys were just slow pokes, Mm -hmm. but um, they tested one or two, nothing good. So Mm -hmm. we went on to round four. Mm -hmm. And Oh, and I cried again that time. So I cried after round one when I didn't get pregnant and I cried round three because it kind of, made me realize, oh, this might not happen. Right. Like Beckett might not get a brother or sister. Mm-hmm. This, I might not have anything, any powder left in the keg. So we did round four, same result, all, all bad. They, were, they call them catastrophic abnormalities when oh, wow. they are basically not compatible with life. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like an extra this or that. There are things where essentially they wouldn't survive. Yeah. It, it wasn't even like an extra 21, which would be downs. And then you could elect if that was something that you wanted to transfer or something like Turner syndrome. It's, it, they were catastrophic in terms of like they would be born and then they wouldn't survive. Right. So after round four, I started to get pissed mm-hmm. because I was like, this sucks. I can't believe that I'm getting 15 to 18 eggs and nothing in there is good. And I am, I referred back before to the fact that I, my industry that I've worked in historically is finance. I'm just a numbers person. I'm a statistics person. And I was looking at that, the percentage for my age, which was very defeating in a way. But I also said, you know, I know there are good eggs in there somewhere. It's just a matter of what I'm willing to go through to find them. Mm -hmm. So if you can handle the cost and if you can handle the procedures emotionally, physically, then eventually you should find success. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know how long it would take. Right. So So how, okay, just stats wise, how many, so you've done four rounds at this point. And well, four yeah. rounds, including Beckett, but I did, I'm through round two. Then we did, how do you want to break it up? Because Beckett was two rounds. Right. Okay. And then I did a total yeah. of one, two, three, four. Oh my God. In the search for a second child. Gotcha. Okay. And so and four so rounds how, and nothing good. And this is all, you're still paying out of pocket for all of this? Mm-hmm. Okay. And how it's are you and your husband? It's a little expensive in Connecticut, but okay. still all out of pocket. How are you and your husband doing, like, relationship-wise? Okay. I was definitely laser-focused, but he was on board, and we were busy parents of a little toddler, but it, it was it was stressful. Yeah. Um, because it did sort of 
interrupt the rest of our life. Mm-hmm. Was he um, on board with you that he would do anything to make it happen? It, it was, that was a little bit tough. He was very supportive, but I felt in a way that every failed round, I had to kind of reconvince him to try. And yeah. it wasn't because of the financial aspect. It was just, he was like, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, you know what? if we have decided we're going to try to have a second kid, we try until I decide we're done. Mm. And like, unless it's ruining our lives. Right. If I'm willing to inject myself and I'm willing to go through it, then I I think I'm the one that ultimately gets to decide. Mm-hmm. You either want to have a second kid or you don't. And like, I'm the pin cushion. So yeah. <laughs> and that was kind of how I felt about it because I, 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 the way I looked at it was I can't deal with the added stress every time that we fail with feeling like I have to convince you again. It just like, it's crushing. Right. Feel like, oh my God, now I have to win this other thing before I can try to win this thing. Like it just, it was too much. Yeah. So I said, I either, you either need to be in or I need to just come to terms with the fact that we're finished. Mm-hmm. I can't keep trying and then feeling like I have to win two things to keep trying. Yep, I get that. So that was like the one thing that was stressful for me. The, the retrievals themselves, they weren't that stressful for me. It was just aggravating mm-hmm. because I just, I just wanted that phone call. Right. Finally, for someone to give me some good news. So after four rounds of nothing normal, I went in and had a meeting with the doctor and he was like, you know, we talked before about donor eggs. And I said, I just, I'm not ready to have that conversation yet. And so at that point I was 43 and a quarter. I'd done four retrievals in a little less than 12 months. Wow. And he said, you know, you have, your FSH looks good. He said, so that doesn't indicate that you have diminished ovarian reserve, but there is some research that states that um, taking DHEA is helpful for women that do have diminished ovarian reserve. What would you think about trying it? Mm-hmm. And what is that again? It's DHEA is a hormone that I had compounded for me, like in a capsule form, mm-hmm. by the same apothecary that I ordered all my stem meds from. So he said, why don't we throw the whole kitchen sink at it and see what happens? And I said, look, okay, fine. If my objective is to find the golden egg, I will try anything that will get more eggs out because the more eggs I get out, the better chance I have Mm -hmm. of finding the one I'm looking for. So after averaging 15 to 18 eggs for every cycle I'd done in the first two for my older son and the ensuing four, that I had done. So six total on the seventh cycle of my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, I took DHA for 45 days prior to stimming and then did all the shots. And I went back and I got 27 eggs, which was oh, like 50% more than I had ever gotten. Yeah. And they all fertilized and then went through the five to six days and they tested and I got my good embryo. Finally, yes. finally, transferred it 
and went back after two weeks and it was a chemical pregnancy. And then I lost it. It was done. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. So after all of that and finally getting it, it didn't work. So I was kind of left in the summer of 14 with the question of, uh, do I want to try one more time? Mm -hmm. Because at this point I kind of resolved in my head that I didn't probably want to be pregnant past 50, uh, past 45. Like Mm -hmm. I just thought after my blood pressure situation with my older kid, and I knew that every pregnancy was different, but I didn't think I wanted to push it much further than that. Right. Plus, how about the fact that when you're in your 40s, you're fucking tired Mm -hmm. (laughs) to have a young kid, right? Seriously, and especially chasing like a three-year-old around. I was really fucking tired. Yeah. So I just, I finally said after that chemical pregnancy over, it was kind of over Memorial Day weekend, I said, okay, I'm going to give this one more shot. So I started taking the DHEA again. And I took it for 45 days and I started stimming at the probably middle of July and went back that retrieval again, 27 eggs. And I was like, okay, I, I don't know about everybody, but for me, DHEA was a total game changer. I mean, it, it changed my output output by 50%. So I, I, I am a sample size of one, but it was a <laughs> huge difference maker for me because that cycle, again, getting that bigger amount of eggs out, I got another normal embryo. Right. And so this is your eighth and final. My routine, eighth right? and final. And it's so funny because when I started going back through stuff to um, kind of think through the timeline to talk to you, I found my meds um, packing list because I'm, I'm not really a pack rat. I, but I do have this one little bag mm-hmm. that was um, sent with, you know, all the sharps and all that crap. And I have the um, protocol sheet from my final retrieval. Mm-hmm. And I have the meds list of all the crap that I took. And I have the, um, do you remember when you went in for the transfer with Sunny and they, they give you like a picture of the ultrasound of your uterus. Yes. They give you the little straw that he was frozen in. Oh no. So I have, um, cool. and I call it his condo. It's his like condo. When, they, when they have the little embryos, they're all in like tiny little straws. Oh, I didn't get mine. <laughs> I'm jealous. So I have this straw of, um, of the condo that that embryo was in. Yeah. I went in the ninth, I mean the third of September and um, it was my older one's first day of school. And I was like, I'm sorry, <laughs> can't do it. Gotta go. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my husband took him and I went in for the embryo transfer and yeah, I like, it wasn't a two week wait because I ended up going back on nine 11, which was eight days later. And we were headed out of town that week and we were going up to Boston. And, um, I went in that morning for blood work and I, I never, ever in all of the times 
So the two transfers for my older one and the two reg- good embryo transfers for my younger one, I never ever tested early. I always waited for the blood test. Like I just wasn't one of those people that was like tempted to pee on the stick. I don't know why. Yeah. I only I did, did it once, usually- but I didn't test early either. I was just like, I can't, I don't want to jinx it or if it's wrong. Like, it's just, I felt like after all that I had been through, yeah, it was just like, I could wait by the book. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I went in and I got the blood test and I came back and I remember just being like, this isn't going to work. Like it never fucking works. Like, and so I remember like specifically I was home with my older one and getting ready to throw everything in the car and go to Boston. And I'm emptying the dishwasher and the phone rings. And I recognized that it was the nurse from the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. And I answered the phone and she and I had developed a rapport. She was super cool. And she was like, I have some good news for you. And I just said, shut the fuck up. And she was like, I'm not fucking kidding. And I mean, (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I, I, was so shocked that it had worked. Right. After all of that, I just couldn't believe that it actually happened. And it was so, it was like clockwork. The second that she called, I was like, oh my God, I feel like I'm going to barf. Like in a really good way. (laughs) But I was so delighted. And that ended up being the insane four-year-old little (laughs) brother who fights with the older one all the time. Yeah. So now I look across the room at them and think eight fucking rounds of in vitro <laughs> for you two animals like, and you hate each other. Uh, I really hope you end up liking each other someday. <laughs> I mean, Brooks, the younger one, he's like a hundred thousand dollar baby. I'm like, yeah. be nice. Exactly. And we were joking before we started recording about, you know, you work so hard to have your kids and then there's days where just real talk. They're not, you know, they're not behaving and you get frustrated and, you know, you feel guilty that you feel frustrated because of all you went through, but then you're like, but I'm also a human being and they're being a-holes right now. So it's complicated. I do just want to impart again, that if I can like leave any wisdom with anyone that is listening to this, it would be to like take charge of your fertility as young as you can, because there are so many companies that are offering coverage for fertility at this point. There are companies that are trying to attract young talent that are offering women who are unattached options to preserve their fertility options. And I remember thinking at 35, well, I don't have any prospects. I don't even know if that's going to happen. But if someone had told me, buy yourself this insurance policy, because you have no idea how desperately you might want this in seven or eight years. Yeah. If we can help anybody avoid the heartache that we went through, you know, right. younger people. I, I didn't know either. I had no idea. And just to have that frozen in the bank. And I remember people saying, well, the technology to unfreeze eggs that aren't fertilized isn't that good. And it's like, well, it's going to be great in 10 years. So yeah. you might as well just better get better. it out and freeze them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So wait, the total was that, was it, did you say that you had 120 eggs retrieved? 120 retrieved and two good ones out of 120. Oh. And then you were, there was something else since you love statistics that you wrote about 
there was like, was it a 4% chance that you would have? Yeah. A At my age, Brooks, the younger one, it was a 4% chance of a live birth. And because the doctor- 44 and a half, right? Exactly. 44 and a half when I had him. And I, that's the one other thing that I saved was the letter that my RE had written to, um, I went back with my second pregnancy to the high risk doctor at Yale just because he was so fabulous. And I didn't want anyone else to be monitoring me. First of all, I was old, a geriatric pregnancy as we, I heard you guys discuss yep. on the pod. Um, and secondly, just because we developed such a great rapport that actually he was at my husband's birthday party a couple weeks ago with <laughs> him and the guys, all of a sudden they sent me a picture and I was like, is that my obstetrician? But it was, he had come to my husband's birthday. So get out. Yeah, we're close. Um, but anyways, oh my, my Ari had sent him this letter and I mean, just the way that he, that he worded it, he, he says that Deb is a wonderful patient and completed several IVF cycles with findings of chromosomally abnormal blastocysts. Thankfully, in spite of her age of 43, she did generate a chromosomally normal blast. I am so happy she is pregnant and hope she has a wonderful pregnancy and delivery with you in your practice. Like he became my friend Aww. and I like, we still talk. Yeah. We're buddies. And he's just, I so appreciate the fact that he let me try. Hey again, guys. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Debbie. And thanks again to Debbie for sharing it all with you guys. I just want to say that there are so many incredible people that I've met in this community. And I want to just take a second to thank everybody that's emailed me, DM'd me, sent me messages about their stories. If I haven't responded to you yet, I promise I will. It's just taking me a minute, but I see you and I hear you. So keep the messages and notes coming. I love that we're all here for each other and I hope that continues and just grows bigger and bigger. So pass this on to somebody you think might benefit from listening and also follow my Instagram at infertile AF stories. And I will talk to you guys next time. Thanks. Thanks.